fundraising is a lot harder today than it was a few years ago. You know, paid channels are much more challenging. And it used to be that investors would just pump money into brand and sort of expect that revenue back quickly. But today, investors are much more interested in a clear roadmap to profitability. So a sound business model from the beginning is super important. Welcome to The Business of Drinks, a podcast dedicated to helping beverage alcohol businesses grow and thrive. I'm Felicity Carter. And I'm Erica Ducey. This season, we're focused on drink startups. How does a brand go from idea to launch and then plot a path to success? What hurdles do brands face along the way and how can they overcome those challenges? Stay tuned as we investigate. Welcome to episode four of The Business of Drinks, the podcast which promises to rip the bandage of the alcohol beverage industry and talk about the unmentionable money. Now, so far, we've been following Christy Frank and her canned cocktail Hamlet Hound, which is small but growing and is looking like it's going to be really successful. But what does it look like when it's not? We had a spectacular example of that in the last couple of years, an aperitif called House. Now, I live in Europe and I never tasted House, but I was certainly aware of the hype and I was certainly aware of it when it crashed and burned. But Erica, can you tell me what was it that got people so excited about this drink? Yeah, absolutely. This was an aperitif brand that launched in 2019 and it eventually raised more than $17 million in funding over its three-year run, reported by TechCrunch. And that was all before its ill-fated series. Series A, which we know didn't happen in 2022, and the brand shut down. Now, this was a brand that really capitalized on the success of the Aperol Spritz. There was sort of a new era in, you know, 2018, 2019, when you were starting to see all of these sessionable drinks, right? Meaning like you could drink many of them without a lot of an alcoholic event. And you were starting to see these sessionable drinks take off. Spritzes were really everywhere. And House did an incredible job of marketing itself as a brand for millennials and taking a very unsexy category, vermouth, and glamming it up. I mean, this was a brand that had super slick marketing. It was very aspirationally hip. All the ads had these young partygoers in sort of Brooklyn apartments with their friends. It really appealed to this idea of the millennial focus on image on wellness and did an incredible job of marketing to that lifestyle. I know that you you like vermouth. You're a big fan. Why is it, do you think, that this category of drinks is so difficult? Well, first of all, tell me why you like it and then answer the question, why is it so difficult? Yeah. Well, what I like about vermouth really is that sessionability. So when I have a vermouth cocktail, I typically am taking, you know, kind of one part vermouth and two parts of tonic or seltzer and some twist of a lime and even like an olive in there sometimes. So for me, it's a very low ABV way to have a cocktail or a drink that, you know, doesn't have that much effect the next day. So, you know, I definitely, even though I'm Gen X, you know, fall into that demographic of people who am not drinking every day and am looking for different kind of wellness focused options. And that's that's really what this delivered. Did you try House? Did you get a chance to try? Yeah, definitely. It was, I mean, they had some different profiles. I think one that 
I liked was, you know, a citrusy profile. And you could either put it on the rocks or mix it with a, a tonic or a seltzer. And, you know, it was it was a lovely drink that kind of paved the way for a lot of others that have come along similarly. So before we listen to Woody, just on what you read in the media and understood, what would you have said went wrong? Well, I've read a lot of interviews from Helena Hambrecht, who was one of the founders. And then, as we know, Woody Hambrecht was the co-founder who we talk with today. And they talked really about pandemic-related issues as being the challenges that kind of took down House. And so the things they've talked about are, you know, supply chain challenges, lack of in-person word-of-mouth growth through gatherings and so forth. It was so important to that brand to help them grow at the outset with their DTC model. And then, you know, I think that the biggest thing that I've seen reported in the media was really that they ran out of runway. So leading into summer of 2022, House was going for a $10 million Series A, and Constellation reportedly had committed to leading that round and had even offered to advance startup money to the brand as, you know, their money started to run out. But then at the last minute, the company apparently, you know, backed out of the deal. It was poor timing. As we know, a lot of other startups were struggling to get funding at that time. And so I think that, you know, ultimately led to its demise. But kind of the ironic thing from my perspective is that the brand had just gotten distribution through Winebow in 24 states. And apparently, according to some of the reports I've seen, you know, the brand also had just reached $10 million in sales mm. over its three-year run. So it's not like it was a complete failure. I think it was kind of a victim of some of the market forces that we saw. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, in some of the interviews that were being done and also in the interview that Woody did with us, they mentioned the brand Allbirds, which is something I've heard, you know, many people who go into startups mention as their sort of lodestar. But Allbirds also suffered a big reversal from trying to scale too quickly, basically, and then coming up against the headwinds of the pandemic, which also was the same situation with Glossier, which was another online brand, DTC brand of, of makeup, which people didn't just like, they loved, they were evangelical about it. So sometimes it's not the product at all that's the problem. Totally. It's the it's the business model. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in this case, you know, in the last episode, we talked with Christy about, are you a palette business, meaning going through distribution channels, or are you a package business, meaning you're selling DTC? And one of the great points that she brought up was, you know, if you have a very high-priced luxury good and very high margins, maybe you can sell individual, you know, bottles of $300 scotch or something like that. And the margins make sense to ship those individual bottles. But when you're looking at uh, lower price points and probably lower margins, it's not really a sustainable business. And I think that a lot of wine clubs have felt those effects. I mean, it's really hard to be following the DTC model when you're a drinks company that is sending pretty heavy packages all around the United States. Yeah. All right. Well, let's listen to what Woody has to say about it. Now, he's moved on and he's got a interesting bag in box called Ami Ami, which he talks to us about, but he also talks about what happened with House. So give it a listen. 
And now, a word from our sponsor, Excel Pay. At the Business of Drinks, we talk about building successful brands. But there's one crucial element that many overlook, the e-commerce experience. It's true. I've landed on so many terrible BevAlk sites with broken links and 20-step checkouts. And don't forget about alcohol sales compliance. Navigating the three-tier system can be daunting, but it's essential to ensure your operations run smoothly and are legally compliant. Enter ExcelPay. From a one-tap, compliant checkout to comprehensive sales data, ExcelPay has you covered and can make your existing site a storefront. Visit ExcelPay.io forward slash BOD to get an exclusive 10% off your account. That's A-C-C-E-L-P-A-Y dot I-O forward slash B-O-D. So today we're talking with Woody Hambrecht, who is co-founder of Ami Ami. Welcome, Woody. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This is great. Great. Well, tell us about your new project. Yeah, so Ami Ami is... Really, it's been something that stemmed from an almost, you know, a lifetime in the industry. Really, what we wanted to do, Ross Dawkins, uh, my co-founder and I, was create a high-end box wine because both of us having direct-to-consumer experience, both of us just having to deal with the operation side of the industry, glass has just become such a hurdle in many cases. I mean, over the last two years, it's essentially doubled in cost if you can even get it. And it actually takes a ton of energy to produce. And it actually, we think of it as this infinitely recyclable material, but actually two thirds of it in the US just ends up in a landfill. So, you know, it takes all this energy to produce it, transport it, and then it doesn't even get recycled. So we wanted to do something better. And, you know, is Bag and Box like the ultimate green solution? No, but, but we do think it's better. And we think, it's more convenient. How many times have you opened a bottle of wine, had two glasses, then gone out the next three days and you come home and that bottle's oxidized, you know, and you just have to pour it down the drain. So there's this use case where you can have a glass, leave the box on your counter, come back a week later, have another glass, come back a week later, have another glass and the wine is still good. So really the convenience factor was um, a huge one for us too. So I, I'm sitting here in Europe where in many countries bag and boxes an accepted part of life and, you know, particularly in Scandinavia. Yeah. That hasn't been the case in the US. Are you finding, uh, are you finding barriers that to acceptance to people? Do you have to explain the whole process and that you can put premium wines in bag and box? That's a great, great question. And absolutely. And that's actually a big reason why we are putting a lot of emphasis in the direct to consumer side of the business. So we can have that direct dialogue with the customer as opposed to having to rely on the gatekeepers, the traditional gatekeepers, to tell our story and explain why you should spend a little more on a really high quality product that just so happens to be in a box. And walk us through how the product is being rolled out and how you're differentiating it from other bag and box products on the market. Yeah, so I think it's really important to recognize that we are not looking at the bag and box market as our competitors. Like we're not competing with black box and Franzia, you know, those are high volume products and generally speaking, low quality. Those aren't our competitors. So 97 and a half percent of the wine market are people consuming 750 mils, you know, and we see that's our customer. One of the 
the questions I'd like to ask is you're selling at DTC, but building brands online is getting harder and more expensive. So how are you building awareness of what you're doing? The landscape has really changed quite a bit over the last couple of years. So one thing coming from a traditional wine background, I didn't recognize the power of PR. And through my last company, House, is where I really was introduced to the idea of really engaging with press and getting a lot of that organic interest in the product. The days of pumping, you know, millions of dollars in Instagram ads and Facebook ads and stuff, it's just, uh, it's a lot harder now. And and no one really, from the investor side of things, people don't really want to see that anymore. They're really looking for sustainable business models. So before you launched House, what were some of the other roles that you held in the industry? So pretty wide ranging at this point now. So I started in the agricultural side. Our family had uh, some vineyard properties. So we produced about say about 600 tons of really high quality grapes every year. So I really, that's where I got my sort of hands-on experience was from the agricultural side first. Then I moved into a sales role, a wine sales role, and that had me traveling all over the country. Taught me a lot about how that old sales model is slow and inefficient, but also it's important. I then moved into a role, a production role, where we were doing about half a million cases a year at a company. We did a lot of direct-to-retail business, so we would bypass the distributor and sell directly to the retailer, like Total Wine & More, Safeway, Kroger, Trader Joe's. So with that, I really learned the ins and outs of production, like glass purchasing, corks, capsules, bottling at multiple facilities, transport of that product to whatever warehouse I had to go to, dealing with exports into Canada and Japan, things like that. So I learned a lot there. I also learned the sort of industrial side of winemaking as well. And that's not that's not within my philosophical nature, but it's just uh, makes me more diverse of a producer, just sort of knowing the capabilities. And it's actually, I think, one of my future projects, which I can't wait to implement when the time's right, is to do a really high quality wine, but in a more automated production facility. And I think with the technology and the infrastructure now, you can really do it. And I, I can't wait to actually to like test this theory. So from that job, I then took over a small winery that Gary Farrell had founded called Elysian. And that was a real high-end Chardonnay Pinot Noir winery that, you know, was it was a slow paced business, but I really learned a lot about quality, like real attention to detail, some through Gary, some through osmosis from Gary. And uh, I learned really how I know how to make wine is from a guy named Shane Finley, who was the winemaker when Costa Brown got their, you know, the best wine in the world. He was one of the guys behind that wine. And Elysian could have been a really good lifestyle business. I could still be doing it today. But when we took investment dollars for house, it was clear to Helena and I that it wasn't going to be something that I, I could do on the side. We needed me to be fully invested in house. We shut it down and um, started house and then the rest of history, really. Yeah. So let's talk about house. So how did the company start? What was the initial idea for it? And then how did it evolve? Yeah, so I had taken over a brand called Elysian, which was a brand started by Gary Farrell. So when he sold Gary Farrell, he took a couple years off and then he started Elysian. And he retired, and so I took it over. And one year, 2013, I had a little extra Chardonnay. It was a really big vintage, so we weren't unable to sell all of our fruit. So I had some extra Chardonnay, and I was thinking like, huh, what can I do with this? I really want to bulk it out because the bulk market was so saturated. And I thought, let's do some R&D. So I guess to step back, I lived in Berlin around the financial crisis, spent Mm -hmm. some time out there, and I moved there from New York. The nightlife cultures were very different 
New York, you kind of would leave at 10, come back at maybe three, and it was very concentrated. Berlin, we'd leave at midnight, and I would stay out kind of all night. And, you know, we were sitting in basically dark cafes, just sort of talking all night. And that's where I was introduced to this aperitif culture, where I started drinking Americanos, which is uh, Campari, vermouth, and soda with a twist. And you'd sort of drink those all night, had a lot of flavor, had a little bit of alcohol to loosen you up a little, but it wasn't like this sort of intensity that I was more accustomed to in the States. So back to this 2013 vintage, I thought, hey, you know, let's make a vermouth. You know, there's no real like artisanal vermouths in the U.S., And it was a great experience. Uh, I partnered with a really, really talented bartender from Atlanta who had moved out west. And we learned a lot in the process. And we made a really, really good product that ended up in some of the best bars in America and even Scandinavia and Japan. But it wasn't like a commercial success because it wasn't really... We had a lot of industry support from it, from like we would get in a cocktail, but it wasn't like we were moving a lot of product. And I had Helena, who was my ex-wife and co-founder of House, we had gotten together and she just sort of saw how I was operating in the wine world. And she was just sort of like blown away by how sort of stuck in time it was. It wasn't modernized. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she was coming from the Silicon Valley perspective where you use the Internet to scale things. And we were at a wedding in Healdsburg. And one of the founders of Allbirds was at that wedding. And we were talking to him. Our daughters had the same name and we share some friends. And that's when the moment struck. We're like, oh, we should basically do like an Allbirds model for booze. And that's what we did. Yeah. So the rest is history. So what I'm interested in is, you know, transplanting a Berlin drink into California. Was it the drink itself that there was no culture of drinking it? Or was it the timing? Can you break down, you know, what I guess what I'm asking is what went wrong? You know, so one of the things, that I've done a lot of reflecting on over the years is, you know, to be a successful entrepreneur, you need to have like this undying optimism. You know, we sort of joke like a pathological optimism and you need to not be swayed by naysayers because like they're everywhere. But at the same time, there's people that have been doing these things for a long time and real seasoned veterans of the industry and they usually have pretty good insight. So there's a dance somewhere in the middle And one of the criticisms that we heard early on with the idea from really smart people was that it wasn't a huge market. The aperitif market wasn't huge. So I think at the end of the day, that was part of the problem. And then, you know, I think uh, we also grew too fast. We, We grew a team that was much too large, I think, for the state of the business we were at ultimately. But we were also riding a wave and there was a lot of excitement with the brand and we, um, you know, we were doing what we thought was best at the time. I mean, I remember seeing for years, it felt like I was your ideal demographic. I would get marketed to with house products all the time. And I think for a period of time, you know, it was like the it drink that people were all about. And, you know, you would see it at parties in New York. You would hear people talking about it. And talk me through sort of the timeline. Like, you mentioned, you know, growing too quickly. And I'm curious to know, like, from the inception of the idea through, you know, through its apex, talk me through the company's timeline. We came up with the idea in summer of 2018. Took us about a year to get all of our ducks in a row. So that meaning, you know, the direct-to-consumer licenses, the branding work done, the production online. I mean, it was it was not an easy product to execute because every piece of the process was so detailed. So that took some time to put together. We launched in June of 2019 
and I had a really good run for a couple of years. But last summer, our Series A fell through, and that's when we basically shut down operations. It's interesting, the timing. There were a lot of funded ventures that, that all shut down around that same time. Some of it was partly because of, you know, the end of cheap money and the raising of interest rates. If you were going to do something like this again, what would you do differently, particularly as it comes to financing? Fundraising is a lot harder today than it was a few years ago. You know, pay channels are much more challenging. And it used to be that investors would just pump money into brand and sort of expect the revenue back quickly. But today investors are much more interested in a clear roadmap to profitability. So a sound business model from the beginning is super important. And that's what actually Ross and I, that's been a fundamental strategy from the beginning. You know, we're two ops guys, so we're always thinking in cost of goods. And for us, we didn't want to be a company that wasn't first purchase profitable. Mm. It was very important for us that the business can scale if we want to invest heavily in marketing or sustain just through like an inventory model where you sell your inventory, it cash flows the business. And that's actually where my experience has been, both from the agricultural side and then my last wine business, you know, there are cash flow businesses. And I think that's really important is to operate with those fundamentals again today. One of our investors is a guy named John Malloy, who's a he's a prolific VC from Silicon Valley and who's an early investor in a number of really high profile companies. And one of the first conversations we had with him was a point that he made that's really resonated. And it's sort of something that Ross and I really keep front and center is that really good companies are built in times like today Mm. because you have to be smart. There's not much room for mistakes and the fundamentals have to be there. That's interesting. I mean, it seems like, you know, 2018 to 2021 was really just a different time in the investment landscape. And it seemed, you know, from where I'm sitting, like everyone wanted to invest. Drinks was a super hot category. But essentially, now people have realized, like, we really need to focus on the pricing of the product. We really need to focus on customer acquisition cost. You have to show me the ROI or I'm not willing to invest. Would you say that that kind of impacts the scale of the business? from a growth trajectory that you think about? When you think about Amiami, are you thinking, okay, we're going to, you know, go slow and sustainable? Or how are you planning that path? That's a great question. We're spending a lot of time doing research. We're doing a lot of A-B testing. And we're really trying to dial this in before we really push any throttles, pull any throttles, because we want to be very efficient with the cash that we have. And you're right, it's it's different today. There just isn't as much access to capital. But but I actually want to go back and make a point here. It wasn't necessarily easy for us to raise money a house. You know, that was really Helena really spearheaded most of that. And you know, being a, a woman in that world to raise money was was not easy. And she did do a great job. But we raised mostly from angels. You know, we didn't have a lot of institutional capital in the company. Um, It was really sort of this evangelist network that funded the company. So yeah, so you know, there was a lot of money being thrown around from yeah that era, but it wasn't like it was necessarily easy. It was always a bit of a struggle. In talking to investment people, do you think that they understand this space, the alcohol space, and and the difficulties of it? Do you think they have any understanding of how this all works? I think some do. I think a lot of people understand brands. I think the regulatory nature of the US with alcohol makes it challenging and it actually limits who's willing to invest in the space. With wine, it's a little different because there's a relationship with the product that a lot of people have and they love it and they want to be a part of it. Aperitifs, 
was a little more challenging because a lot of people didn't know how to consume the product and didn't even know what the product was. Mm. So when people came in and invested in the house, I think a lot of that was with the brand and just the excitement that we saw in the market. What was the inspiration for Army Army? What was the moment that you thought, you know what, the market really needs to embrace this? Yeah, there's a number of reasons why we chose to do this. For one, both Ross and I are sort of contrarians in the industry. You know, we we don't want to do what everyone else is doing. I have no interest in just having another wine brand that doesn't really differentiate itself from anybody else. So we wanted to be unique. Both of us coming from direct consumer businesses. So Ross came from First Leaf, which is I think the largest direct to consumer wine business in the US. He shipped out his last year there. I think they did a million cases mm. all direct to consumer. So pretty big business. And then my experience with House and we did all of our own fulfillment while I was still there and you know you see all these boxes shipping every day and you just have a sense of gosh I think we can be doing better and I think there's a better solution out there that has less of a carbon footprint. And that's really how the conversation started. First we looked at cans, I think there's some quality limits with cans. And that brought us to bagging box. And, you know, I'm someone who I want to pour a glass of wine on a Tuesday. And, you know, I don't want the pressure to finish the bottle because I know it's going to go bad. And this was just like a use case. You know, I'm the use case. I wanted a glass of wine on a Tuesday and next Monday. And I didn't want to have to keep opening bottles. And the bagging box is really the solution for that. Also, the market is, you know, 97.5% of the U.S. wine market are bottles, uh, you know, 750 bottles. So only 2.5% is bag and box. And and that's really dominated by like the black boxes and the franzias of the world. And those aren't the wines that I drink typically. And Ross and I realized that there just wasn't a good solution for the type of drinking that we wanted to incorporate into sort of our daily life. Of course, there's always going to be room for, you know, the special bottles you bring out at a special dinner and you've been cellaring that wine for a decade. This was really for the, you know, it's like 95% of wine is consumed within two weeks of purchase. That That's the customer that we're looking for. Now, you set yourself quite a challenge because, as we were saying before the podcast, drinking out of bag and box is very normal in Europe, particularly in Scandinavia. And we're seeing here on the continent a lot of premiumization of the bag and box. But you're starting in a market that has to begin with accepting the bag and box. So how are you going to overcome that barrier? It's a huge challenge. Yeah. I mean, we're focusing on an early DTC sales plan so we can talk to the customer. We can't rely on the old school gatekeepers, the you know the old retail folks, there's already too strong of a preconceived notion of what you can put into a bag and box. Why we're doing this is because we believe the timing is right. And through channels like direct consumer, through PR, through just in real life events, that's how we're finding these customers and teaching people that, hey, look, you know, we've been doing this in Scandinavia for a long time. You know, we've been doing this in Western Europe for a long time. You can really get high quality wine in a bag and box. And there's a lot of reasons why it actually makes a lot more sense than glass. And so, yeah, that education is hard for sure. We're finding a new generation of drinkers that are open to new formats and new things. I mean, house is a perfect example of it. Uh, something that people said was going to be a failure from the beginning. And, you know, as we all know, it had this great period. The rise in cans, wine in cans, you know, early on, gatekeepers said that was a terrible idea. Now there's some really big brands doing it. Products like the Trulias of the world, nobody knew that that could exist, but then it does. So 
I think we just have a new consumer. Now you've been through this a couple of times. You've started a couple of different brands. What advice do you have for other startup drinks brands? So I think the first piece of advice I would share is it's okay to throttle back. You don't need to blow up overnight. And legacy brands aren't made overnight. You know, you may have the desire to expand in every state and every country. And it's really important to stay focused, I think. And just keep all levers of your brand and its core purpose engaged. And yeah, find advocates, evangelists who really believe in the product, both in the sort of good times and bad. And also really pay attention to all the details. You know, product excellency is key, especially today when things are getting easier. I think it's arguably easier to start a brand today than ever before. How are you going to stand out? And that's ultimately your product has to be fantastic. You have to beat everyone out on product. Packaging has to be really, really great. The unboxing experience, everything with the DTC experience, if you're going to be a DTC brand, you have to have exceptional customer service. That's something that actually I learned at house, you know, coming from the wine industry. Sure, we were all direct to consumer. We all had wine clubs and, you know, the majority of us, that's sort of what kept us going. But the customer service level wasn't there, really. You know, you would send an email and say, hey, we're going to ship uh, your wine for this quarterly shipment. And you'd charge the card. And then maybe a week and a half later, you'd ship the product. With a real modern direct-consumer brand, you need direct communication with the customer. When that purchase is executed, you need to ship product, you know, really within 24 hours if you can. You really have to handhold and you just can't compromise on today. We've just become too accustomed to purchasing products on places like Amazon where you get what you purchase immediately. And those are now societal norms, essentially, and you just have to live within them. But that's a really interesting point that you're making. I mean, the wine industry has been criticized for a long time for, for this very thing. But of course, it takes lots of people to actually, you know, pack, ship, take it to the post office. So in building a brand, do people need to think about labor as well? Is it something now that you could do yourself and build with a, you know, from the heart with craft or before you even go into something like this, do you need a certain number of, of people? Yeah, so that's, you're right. To go back on this idea of real attention to detail, with House and with Amiyami, we are doing our own fulfillment. House, when I left House, after my left, there was a transition to a 3PL, but in the early days, we fulfilled everything in-house and that did take labor. I was in a unique position because I have the agricultural business, so I have access to labor. And that was one of our sort of core assets on the infrastructure side. We could sort of scale up and scale down as we needed. And you know, we have the same access with Amiyami. So I recognize that not anyone can duplicate that. But I would heavily advise anybody, if they're really looking to build a brand with sort of real evangelists, do as much as you can in-house. And I recognize sometimes it doesn't pencil to do that. You know, you need the warehouse space and, you know, you need the infrastructure to be able to handle that. If you can make it pencil in your business model, I would heavily encourage people to do that. It's just, you don't have that in between. You're controlling the relationship with the customer, not a company that's working with, you know, dozens of other companies handling your fulfillment. You mentioned the word evangelist a couple of times. How do you find evangelists for your product? And, and what do evangelists look like? So there's a couple of different types of evangelists. With House, what was interesting, and I mentioned this earlier, we were mostly funded through angel investors. So there was a lot of people that had a small 
piece to the company. And they loved it. And they loved the brand. They loved being a part of it. And they would always share it. That was awesome. That was a really cool, unexpected outcome of fundraising that way. Another way to get evangelists are people that just fall in love with the brand. So, you know, we're, AmiAmi is just starting, starting to get a ton of inbound, specifically on social, of people just saying how much they love the brand and the playfulness of it and the real attention to the design, but it's also not too stuffy. And so it's really just finding something, creating something that people can attach themselves to and, and love. And with Ross and I, we wanted something that was an extension of ourselves and how we looked at the industry and how we wanted you know, we basically were able to create our sort of perfect brand that screams quality, playfulness, fun, a collectiveness, sort of inclusion nature of it all, and taking like the fussiness out of the whole experience. I mean, for some reason, the wine industry has done a really good job of sort of alienating a lot of people, you know, because a lot of people don't know how to talk about it or they're uh, maybe a little intimidated by it all. But hey, it's it's fun. We've been drinking wine for thousands of years. You know, it's uh, something that should be for everyone. All right. Well, I know we're up against time and we thank you so much. Yeah, that was fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Felicity, I think it's time for a drink. Do you agree? I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. I'm with you all the way. Well, here we are at Last Call, the part of the episode where we talk about something that we've been enjoying drinking lately. Felicity, what have you enjoyed lately? Well, I've been enjoying the 2020 vintage from the Rhone Valley. I've just come back from a week of tasting and the Rhone has suffered from very hot vintages for the last sort of three years prior to 2020. And suddenly the wines all turned into fresh and lively with lots of pleasant acidity and they were really, really drinkable. But the thing I found the most interesting is that people there are talking about seeking advice from the new world about how they deal with these very, very hot summers that they're dealing with. Because in some cases, you know, some of the, the wines from hot vintages are just so, they've been pushed almost into ugliness. You know, Ooh. they're just losing some of the just delightful character that comes from the Rhone Valley. So I made a discovery. I discovered the whites of a village called Ladon and beautiful wines, lots of blends of, of whites from the Rhone, the Viognier, Roussan, Massan, Grenache Blanc. And these were just lively, delicious, well-priced wines. One I'm just pulling out for my notes is Chateau Courac Village Blanc. 2021. These are wines that I'm going to make a real effort to seek out and drink because they're really good value for money and they're really lively. And many of them have got a sort of slight touch of bitterness on the palate, which makes them really interesting, food-friendly wines. What about you? What have you been drinking? So last night, it felt like the first day of spring in New York City. Mm. And uh, I was out in Greenwich Village sitting outside for the first time of the year at a restaurant that I love. And I had a glass of Philippa Pato. She is a new oh. generation Portuguese winemaker. She makes this great sparkling wine that's called 3B. It's a brute rosé sparkler. And you know, I love Philippa Pato. I love all of her wines. She comes from a winemaking family and her own projects, you know, she makes wines from indigenous grapes that are farmed biodynamically. She mostly focuses on the Bayrada Appalachian. And this 3B, it's on the 
by the glass lists of a lot of restaurants that I like in New York City. And it's because it's such a huge value. It's this bright pink sparkler, mostly from Baga grapes and made in the traditional Champenoise method. And it's deeply colored, dry and crisp, but has this really bright sort of floral and like raspberry aromatics in it. It's such a crowd pleaser and such an excellent value. It's about $20 by the bottle retail. You know, this is the type of wine that when I'm thinking about spring and dining outside, the second I saw it on the wine list, I was like, yep, that's what I'll be having. Do you know, a couple of years ago, I went to a conference, a pretty dreary industry conference in Porto, in Portugal, and I took myself off to dinner and the service was okay. And then I ordered a Filippo Pato wine from the wine list and suddenly the service really perked up and the sommelier came over to talk to me. They were like, if you know about those wines, you must be a true wine lover. It was extraordinary. Mm. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. That's so much fun. Indeed. Well, let's raise a glass to Philippa. Cheers to you. Cheers. Thank you for joining us today on The Business of Drinks. And if you liked what you heard, help us spread the word. Follow and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you tune in. And if there's some aspect of the business that we have not covered, but you want to know more about, let us know. Felicity, how can people reach out? They should email us at podcast at businessofdrinks.com. We'll see you soon.